Welcome to the podcast by the ATA Slavic Languages Division. This is Veronica de Michelis. And this is Victorina Howard. We have a very special guest today. We're very excited to welcome Chris Durbin, a French into English translator based in Paris, specializing in finance and corporate communications. She's an active member of the translation community, despite her low profile on social media. Um, the co-author of The Prosperous Translator and a contributor to 101 Things a Translator Needs to Know. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. I first attended your presentation in the, at the Chicago conference, and you have been in the industry for a while. So our first question is, do you feel that translation and interpreting professionals continue to struggle with the same challenges year after year, like going to clients' conferences, getting out of the translation bubble, finding viable market segments, etc. Or have there been changes, for example, the advent of artificial intelligence? I think, I think it's an interesting question, of course. And um, what I see more than... Uh, things changing over time is cycles coming back. People are interested in the same sort of things and then they kind of forget them and then they move on to the next one. And so, for example, I, I've been in the translation market for 40 years, a little bit more than 40 years. And I have seen, I can remember a time when there, when there weren't even computers, if you can imagine that. Uh, but I find that translators tend to focus, for example, a lot on specialization and then they kind of move past that and get in very interested in writing style, which I think is very interesting, and then move on to tips on finding clients and such. And then we'll rotate it back around to militancy and PR or specialization again, and around it goes, around it goes. I do think that artificial intelligence changes some things because uh, for translators who have been just ticking over um, artificial intelligence has probably already captured a lot of their clients. And, but for the, for translators, as I see the profession, in my, in my view of what the profession should be, and technology is an aid more than anything else, really. And if your, your practice is threatened by artificial intelligence, uh, maybe you weren't paying enough attention to the human side of it in the first place. I, I that's an open question. Yeah, I've got to jump on that. Can you tell us how the profession should be, in your opinion? Okay, um, I see you know, there's, there's space for everybody to start out with. There really is space for everyone. Um, but I know as I've kind of moved through um, getting my first experience and then working in-house and then working as a freelancer and so on, um, I realized that what interests me really is uh, full-time translation. And I totally get that there are times in your life when you're raising small children or taking care of an older parent or something, you can't work full-time, right? But at the same time, I see a big difference between full-time translators in their sort of awareness of themselves and the awareness of the market and their investment in the market uh, and people who are working part-time, uh, just a couple hours, just earning a little bit of money here and uh, ha who have actually another interest in life, which is, which is much more important to them. And for me, and I'm, I, again, I, I'm trying to be very nice here because I'm a, basically a really nice person. I don't want to criticize anyone, but what interests me most, especially now, is people who are translating full-time, who are specializing, who are seriously engaged with the client world. Uh, 
um, just because I find it infinitely more stimulating and in ever so many ways. Intellectually, it's more interesting. I think there's a lot more social respect. And I know a lot of translators get very fussy about nobody respects them and so on. Uh, so if you work at this level I'm talking about, you do get respect. And then it's immensely more lucrative. So there's always that for people who like money. At the Monterey Forum this year, you will speak on embracing risk as a path to success. Can you tell us more about that? Um, yes. Actually, I'm, I'm not involved with Monterey in any particular way, although I know that in North America, Monterey is one of the places to go for training for translators and interpreting. I received a little announcement about the Monterey Forum earlier this year, and I guess it's because I'm on the editorial board of BABA, the Feet magazine, and it announced this upcoming conference, which was going to be about risk mitigation or mitigating risks for uh, translation interpreting careers or professionals or something like that. And I was, I was intrigued, actually, by the title because as much as I see my role with clients being risk mitigation, that is, they hire me so that I can help keep them from risk, uh, the very notion of emphasizing that translators and interpreters should avoid risk at all price or seek to get away from it is for me the antithesis of what you should be doing. Because for me, again, risk is where it's happening. Uh, and this is not like you should throw yourself out, out of a five-story window or something like that. But it's uh, that I think for interesting jobs, translators, once they're good enough anyway, should be actively looking for risky situations. They should be looking for situations where a client faces potential catastrophe or tragedy or something due to, um, I mean, it could be natural risk or accidents of some sort or um, it damage to reputation, uh, image, financial risk, that sort of thing. Because those are the areas that we, as skilled human translators should be focusing on because those are the areas where clients need us most and are most prepared to recognize us and appreciate us. And so my response to the people in Monterey was uh, rather than risk mitigation for our professions, we should be training students, good students, huh, to seek out risk situations and celebrate them. Because that's sort of where the, I think the best translators are operating nowadays. And it's certainly uh, an example of areas where there will be no competition whatsoever from artificial intelligence. It just doesn't, doesn't apply. It's a completely different thing. And so I'm going to be talking about that. And I'm going to be talking about how I look to um, teachers of translators, future translators and interpreters, as people who are well-placed to point this out to students, that what you want to do is look for risk. Not, not seek to avoid it. I don't know if that's clear. Yes, thank you. And what about the situations when clients face certain opportunities? Do you think that's as effective as seeking out risky situations? Uh, possibly, but then you, know, the, you can turn it around. And I, maybe I'm just playing with words here, but an opportunity is uh, something where you have the risk of not picking up on the opportunity if you don't have the right language services to help you, possibly. possibly. But I do think, uh, I do think clients are more... Um, I mean, it, it comes down to how you market yourself as well. If you come to a potential client and you say, I will create beautiful translations for you. They're, they're, they will be so good. It will be wonderful, right? Uh, I think that's a nice thing to say, and it's a positive thing to say, and it's maybe an intuitive thing to say that you are very good and that you'll look after them and so on. But uh, I, I actually think it's more effective 
and clients will, will you'll catch their attention more if you talk about the fact that you can protect them. You can protect them from, from serious risk and then build on that to help them develop opportunities, of course. I know with, with my clients, I do uh, work with them in crisis management, um, but once that, that, that's a good way, foot in the door, it's a good way to start because then they absolutely need you and you have to be absolutely expert at what you're doing right away. You don't get a second chance. But if that goes well, then when they are exploring new markets, risking a move into new markets, uh, then they can also use your, your skills there. So that's, that's one thing that I do, in fact. So maybe the two, maybe the two meet up somewhere. Maybe I was just overreacting to the notion about being worried about risk, but uh, it was something that something that, that that speaks to me. That very definitely speaks to me. No, it certainly makes sense. I just sometimes feel like we go overboard on the nuclear option and promise that if you don't hire a professional translator yesterday, mm-hmm. you, know, you will fail forever. And so. It might be that people just start tuning this out because it seems very self-serving. Yeah, possibly, possibly. But I mean, another thing I have, um, something, something that I do, because I do, I'm very much in favor of hyper-specialization. And so when I get a new client, often my business card is more or less my hook to get the client is financial communications because that's what I'm specialized in. Uh, but very often, if that goes well, then there will be more projects with the same client. And depending on their area of business, then it becomes very, very important for me to specialize in their business. And even before getting a new client in an area that, that looks to be growing, um, one of the things that I, I very definitely do is get out of the house. I get out into client venues and I'm just present there for a while, absorbing it, taking it in so I can see how they talk, what their priorities are. Uh, and so on. And uh, I've, I've become part of their world, part of their, I hate to say it, but tribe. <laughs> and that then means that they, I, I don't talk to them all, at all about translation in the beginning. Huh? I'm just, I just talk about what their concerns are and their interests are. And then uh, ultimately, once I've been accepted into their community as a person who is intelligent and contributes to what they're doing uh, outside of translation, then the translation stuff comes up. Um, and that I find is a very, uh, a very good way to connect with the type of clients that interest me anyway. Mm-hmm. Makes absolute sense. So speaking of tribes, can you tell us more about why you enrolled in Seth Godin's Old MBA program and what you got out of it? Ah, well that was back in, I'm going to say 2015, 2016, I think 2015 maybe. Maybe. Um, so Seth Godin is a writer. Uh, he's a marketing specialist, and he writes a blog. He's written 20 books at least. Um, he does lectures and that, that sort of thing. And I had always just enjoyed reading his blog in particular. Every day you get like a, something he's thinking about, which is always well-written, clear to the point, and there's kind of a message in it. Uh, I am not a particularly spiritual person, and I'm certainly not into gurus, so that that does not appeal to me. But I found very practical and sensible the types of things he was saying. Um, And so... um, some of the, one, one thing behind a lot of what he talks about, if it's, if it's in terms of marketing, uh, it's selling stuff, of course, but it's also um, broader-based, uh, helping change to happen. And as I get older, that to me is quite important. I've always been a militant freelance translator, um, and I've been involved with translation associations because 
I see that as a kind of contribution that you make to push things ahead, to make change happen, to make change happen in, in, in the, the right way, in, in a way that's going to benefit everyone. And so I had um, seen that ATA was having various problems with its board, and I decided, since I'd already served on the boards of two other associations, and since I was a member of ATA, that I would run for the board because I had time and, and I would like to contribute. And I started going to the meetings, and it was very, very interesting to see how different from the European associations I've been involved with before, AT was. Um, and I just, it just, the meetings got me thinking about what is leadership and how, what is the most effective way of making change happen and push th pushing things forward? Um, so I was thinking a lot about that. And then suddenly Seth Godin announced that he was starting this ELT MBA program. At the time, it was five weeks, intensive study with 100 people, and it was to help learn how to make change happen. I mean, I keep saying that as if it's a, a sort of motto, but it, in fact, it was very much that. And kind of on the spur of the moment, I thought, okay, I was feeling a little bit frustrated on the ATA board. I thought, okay, well, let me just do this, because it's true. I've studied lots of things in my life, but I have not studied business management per se, and this idea of having a, a better grounding in some of the, the principles of um, of leadership and change and stuff. So I signed up for it. And my God, that was about the most intense learning I'd ever done. Uh, I was in the European time zone. And so in my study group, you were in a group of 10, 12 people. Uh, there were a couple of people in Ireland, in Britain, furniture salesmen in Austria. There was a woman involved in, in women's education in South Africa, uh, someone who worked for Microsoft in Lagos. Um, it was just a very mixed group of people. And our only point in common was that we all enjoyed Seth Godin's writing. But it was that was, in fact, enough because it was the sort of attitude you needed to get into the exercises, do a lot of writing, a lot of collaborative work. Um, and it was life-changing, yeah. Actually, for me, it was, very, it was very reassuring in a certain way and opened my eyes to a number of things that I was doing that were not effective and, um, and things that I could potentially do better or do in a different way to try to make change happen. And so it was, it was kind of by chance, it was just, okay, I'll do that. Here's the announcement. Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> I did it. Um, and I made some fast friends within the group of people I was working with. And it gave me a better grounding in some of the ways that associations work well and in other cases don't work well at all, in fact. Um, and I, I would say, actually, it was also you know, interesting just to interact with the, the people on the course and to interact with Seth Godin himself, who is, I, I found, a very kind person, a very humble person in many ways. Um, and since I'm always very eager to promote professional translation, one of my, a lot of my essays that I wrote as part of the course had to do with professional translation, talking to other people from outside the direction about that and talking to, to Seth Godin about it. Um, and he it was, it was an interesting experience. He subsequently made available to translators uh, his leadership, he has a leadership program, some kind of a, an online course thing that, that's available, I think, through Udemy or one of, those, one of those platforms. And I asked him if he would make that available to translator associations for International Translators Day. <laughs> and uh, I was you know, going to try and find the money to pay for it afterwards. But he said, uh, said, oh, no, we could have it for free. And uh, I thought, you know what, that was very kind. And so uh, on that, in that year, on International Translation Day, uh, 
most, a lot of the European associations got involved. The HDA executive board decided not to do it because they thought it would be uh, promoting Seth Godin's work commercially and they didn't like that idea. Whatever, that was their, their choice. Um, but it was, uh, it, was, it was fun. It was interesting. It was interesting to, for me to see all of these professional associations of translators interacting in an intense, I guess it was four-hour period, online, across borders, discussing, learning about leadership and how you, how you push things ahead. I, I enjoyed that, actually. Um, and since then, I, I kind of keep an eye on the other, other courses and things that he does just because I think he has, uh, he has useful ideas. So for my, for my work, how does that apply to my work? Um, to my work, there was a lot in it about empathy with your clients, which I, I already had, I think, to some extent, but it made it clearer to me that the kind of lecturing tone that some translators take with their clients is not a good way to start out or continue. It isn't. It sets you apart. You have to rather be in the world of your client totally. And I think for uh, translators who are trying to get their business organized, the idea of thinking about a specialization uh, is important. But thinking about the smallest possible number of clients you need to be able to not just survive, but to flourish is a good notion. So rather than do things because you'll find a maximum number of clients, instead you decide what, how many clients would you need to build up a business based on one very specific areas. Two, three, four, five, six. Okay, that's fine. You can do that then. Uh, so that was, that was something I took away from the course. It was useful. I don't know. I've been uh, running on here. Is that, does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. That was the minimum viable audience. Uh -huh. yeah. 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 Another thing that really resonated with me when I listened to a recent interview with Seth Godin on the Copywriter Club podcast was the idea of best work. And that speaks also to specialization because just, you know, in how many areas can you be an expert in? Whatever area you select, and it can be a minuscule area, you are the best. You are the one who does that. And when anybody wants that, they have to come to you. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a, very, um, a very useful thing. And, you know, the, there's practical things you see every day in what translators do. A translator who announces, I'm a medical translator, right? Or I'm a financial translator. Or I'm a technical translator. Those are absolutely ridiculous categories because they're far too broad. They're far, far too broad. You should be you're rather saying, uh, I'm an, I, I specialize in orthopedic devices or something like that. Or um, I, I, I'm a financial translator, right? But I don't translate financial statements. I translate stock exchange materials, but not derivatives and bonds, rather just shares, right? So to some extent, the, the, the degree to which you're prepared to say, I don't do that, I don't do that, here is what I do, makes it easier to connect with clients who want that. In fact, just being being uh, you know, ma making a, making a ruling out what you what what is sort of beyond that, and I, I think of that occasionally with uh, people who announce that they're technical translators. Far too broad. That's far too broad a category. You should be able to say something like, you know, you specialize in three D printing, or you specialize in uh, air conditioning systems, or something like that, because those are the keywords. Those are the concepts that will appeal to clients who actually put a premium on, on uh, specialized knowledge. Uh, if you're just technical, technical, technical is everything, really, in fact. Um, so that's, that's something I think translators would do well to, um, to think about. Makes a lot of sense. 
Mm -hmm. um, a lot of translators and interpreters stumble into this profession by chance or because their personal circumstances make this career seem appealing. What is your advice for beginners, part-times, and dabblers that try to figure out whether it's worth it to commit fully? Well, again, I'm, I'm trying to be a nice person here, and I am a nice person, in fact. So there is, there's room for everybody out there. If you're a part-timer, a ditherer, or a dabbler, go ahead, do that. That's fine. But in that case, don't complain about not making a really good living. Don't complain that people don't respect you uh, because you have kind of opted out of what I consider to be the most interesting, most attractive professional part of the market where you're doing it full-time, you're taking it seriously, and you're committing – a lot of time to becoming better at what you do and to building your building your network in uh, in whatever it is that you do right um, I, I was thinking about that I was listening to some a podcast the other day and it reminded me for example you know when you're looking for new clients um, some, some people were complaining it takes it's so hard to find new clients <laughs> I thought well yeah if it was easy everybody would be doing it uh, but when I'm I've identified a client that I think would be good for me because they need the type of things that I can do very well, right? Um, I consider it a challenge to win them, but at the same time, I'm prepared to invest some serious time and serious money to win them because I have identified them as somebody who's good fit with me. And if I win this client, normally with my degree of specialization, I will have them as a client for five or 10 years, 15 years maybe. Right. So, uh, I mean, that's that's the difference between sort of taking whatever translating, whatever moves and taking whatever jobs come your way and being available for everything all the time, whatever. And actually having a plan where you know what you know, you know what you don't know. And you you have you're active to the extent that you identify who needs you, what client profile needs you. And then you do what it takes to get out and uh, and meet them and meet them and not ever say, hi, I'm a translator. Do you want some translations done? <laughs> because that's a terrible start to anything. Instead, as I said before, you get into their tribe, into their group. You ask them about their products. You talk about what they're doing. You ask them about priorities in their industry. I don't know. But you become part of their group by talking about them first. And the translation part then comes in naturally later, in fact. Um, so um, if you're a beginner, um, I mean, that's not your fault. Everybody began somewhere. I would say uh, take it as a given that you're going to have to put in like two, three years of just hard work doing translation, right, uh, to pick up the reflexes that you need to start doing it well. And after three years, for me, after three years, if you don't start having a few direct clients, that's what you want, um, then I think there's probably a problem with your quality. I think I would say that, and I would look start looking harder at my quality if I haven't won a couple of direct clients by the time I'm three years in. But I think before then, it would be kind of crazy to um, jump out there and claim that you can work with direct clients and so on. I know I I have interns occasionally, and they're very very good. Most of them they're very good. Um, they come I have them for three weeks or five weeks or whatever. Um, they're beginners, right? Nothing that they produce is saleable to my clients. Nothing is remotely saleable, even though they're really nice and they're trying really hard, but it's just, I think it's a question of getting into the market enough, into the word, the translation 
concept enough. Um, and so if you're a beginner, I guess you have to bite the bullet and say, okay, I'm going to you know, buckle down and do this. But then don't lose sight of the fact that at some point you will not be a beginner. And so the decisions you're making as, a, as you start out by finding a mentor, um, going for the harder choices rather than the easy ones, uh, that's kind of what will define you thereafter. And, and well, if you're good, that will help you help you build a career. Uh, and keep in mind that there there is a career out there, right? Um, there's there's a, there are a lot of opportunities, and I would say that kind of regardless of language pair. Um, I know in some languages it's trickier, but at the same time, this idea of um, operating aiming to operate at the very highest level, not just the comfortable stuff comfortable, easy stuff, but actual, the hard stuff, uh, there's there's uh, certainly demand for translators in all the language pairs I'm aware of. Does that answer your question? Yes, absolutely. So for beginners and dabblers and part-timers who would love to get to the highest level and be a successful freelancer, what would be the most important habits that they need to adopt? Um, I would, haha, shall I say something controversial? I would say separate yourself from social media as much as you can. Um, I see social media as a drain on time. I mean, I would say that since I'm not really on it very much, but uh, I see lots of translators who engage in what they think is the profession through social media groups where they're interacting with other translators. And I, I, I don't doubt that it's friendly and it's uh, maybe supportive in a certain way, but that is not where clients are. And you can become very confident of yourself amongst other translators. I see this in some groups where they actually spend all their time complaining about clients. <laughs> it's got to be the craziest thing around. Um, but I would think that um, you should dip in in moderation and force yourself to do a lot of reading in the subjects that you want to specialize in. And then force yourself to get out of the house to physically get out of the house and go where clients hang out. Um, whether You don't even have to talk to them to start out, just stand there and listen to them in a discreet way. Um, but it, the, the fact of putting yourself in that, I guess for some people, risky situation where you're in a group of clients, potential clients, and you're not really sure what you're going to say, that's good for you. That stretches you, that pulls you out of your comfort zone. And I think ultimately... Get, helps you develop reflexes where you can interact with clients more uh, more effectively. Um, I think you should also look for translators who are doing the type of work that you want to do someday um, or trans translators who do good translation work. Okay, not the, you know, being friendly, nice translators because there are an awful lot of those out there, but people who do good work, identify good work, find out who did it, and try to meet those people and engage with them. Uh, because one of the things I certainly have seen over my career is that translators at the top of the market always have too much work, virtually always have too much work. And if you, you know, you won't immediately get clients from them, but if you can see how they work and you can get into their world, that will be more useful than hanging out in social media, um, chattering with with friends. And again, I have nothing against people who chatter with friends on social media, but it's just, I think it can be a total time suck. And it can make you think you're doing professional things when you really aren't very much. That's an opinion. 
That's great advice. Um, so for markets such as um, several of the Slavic languages markets, what is your advice on positioning and not getting sucked into the lowest bidder cycle uh, because of the difference in the living standards? Okay. Uh, I don't do any Slavic languages myself. So this is, you know, who am I to even say anything on that? However, I do uh, give talks in many, many European countries. Um, and I know as part of the French Association, we have these one-day training sessions, how to set up as a translator in France, that I co-teach on. And we often have um, translators and interpreters doing Slavic languages who come along on those courses. And one thing I consistently hear is, you know, prices in Russia, for example, are so low, we can't possibly compete. It's just impossible. And I hear that, and my first takeaway from that is, well, you, then you shouldn't be competing on price because you can't. It, you know, that's, you, they will, the cost of living in France is such that if you work below a certain price, it, you're not really working professionally in any case. So you would have to, again, to in response to that, um, look for areas to specialize in or like for the Russian translators I know in France, for example, uh, you know, play on the fact that you are here and you're a face and a person and you have a personality and you can talk to people and they can see you're here, which is far more reassuring for French clients than sending something over to Russia, way over there, which psychologically is far away. I also think that um, in Russian specifically, I've heard that there are opportunities in, in the secure markets, but you have to be very, very good, right, in, in defense and so on. Um, you can't just go in and dabble and whatever. That, that, that won't work. Um, I've been impressed by the technical training of most of the Slavic language translators I've met. Um, and I just, I can only assume that in, you know, universities in their countries, or original countries, uh, there's a lot of very serious work going on. Um, but from there, building that up to, you know, actual writing skills, which is something you have to work on all the time, is, is, is quite different. But I would say, um, yeah, just make sure that the pricing price is not your thing that you're selling on. That, that just seems like a banal observation because of course nobody wants to be the cheapest in the room. Right. But, uh, but I think you should be aware that there are markets where prices are much higher and you only ever hear of them. If you actually have put in the time to become somebody who does really, really good work. And then, as I said, then look, look for mentors, look for people who are doing the type of work that you want to do. And Find a or arrange to meet them, right? I'm, one of the things that, that struck me is that translators, professional translators and, and interpreters, always have kind of a curious spirit, and there are most of them, aside from the just totally crazy ones, are are quite pleased to meet new people and offer advice if they can. You know, that's that's uh, we have a, quite an open profession in that respect. I think, I do think, right? Does that answer your question? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on our podcast. And uh, we're very grateful that you found the time and um, gave so much valuable advice.